I'm assuming that uh, Jody said that she was just going to cover uh, yes. Alma 38, so she got Shiblom. So you've been Shiblomed, yes. Helamond, Shiblomed. And now, now we run into uh, uh, Corianton. Now we know this story pretty well. Um, why, and this is actually pretty tender uh, counsel and guidance being given to, uh, to somebody, which you'd think, uh, can you imagine if you had done some things wrong and uh, your father was going to talk to you about it and then write it up and then publish it to the world? <laughs> that would be a little uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Um, but he did. Um, and we got three chapters. Uh, on this, or four chapters. Why would he do that? Why take the time on the plates to do that? Yeah? He realized how important moral purity is. Yeah, he recognized how important moral uh, sexual purity is. Right. Yeah? Okay. He knew what we'd be dealing with in this case. Yeah, if it's coming to our day, this is this is kind of a hot topic, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Well, he, he loved him, and he didn't give up on him. One of those things we're going to find, he didn't give up on him. If, if, and now, but by the way, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, so I, but I don't want to belabor it. Was it successful? Yes. Did did Corianton repent? Yes. How much did he repent? Became a magnificent missionary and could have been the next purveyor of the plates had he not gone off on a ship. Uh, instead of Helaman, we would have had Corianton and then Third Nephi. So that that's coming back all the way. It comes back all the way. Yeah. Well, there's just a lot of doctrines that come forth in this about yes. salvation, and he in the writings. He never says Corianton's name. He really doesn't, does he? Just my son. But we, it's through, I don't know how we know that it's Corianton. Now after we get, after we get kind of past the, the, the sexual problem here, and you look at the balance of this, how applicable is all of this? Okay, a lot. There's an awful lot here that if we're looking at it, we should be able to look at it and go, well, this isn't that far off. This applies to us as well as, as everybody else. Okay? So, I love this idea then um, that we're now going to spend uh, the next few chapters trying to save a soul. Trying to save what lengths, what lengths does the Lord go through to try and save a soul? What length do we go through to save a soul? What length, how many dollars does the church spend trying to save a soul? How much of our, I'm always, I'm always uh, amazed at people that are attacking the church and they don't have very much insight uh, into kind of the inner workings of things. But President, let me put you on the spot. Uh, in in uh, state... Uh, presidency meetings, in high council meetings, in, in PPIs with bishop. How much time is spent on individuals trying to figure out how to save individual souls? The it is the majority of the time, isn't it? Um, I'm, always, I'm always touched um, 
I, I've mentioned before the, uh, the meeting that I dread the most are disciplinary councils. The meetings that I, I oftentimes love the most is the second disciplinary council where uh, you watch somebody come in and they have worked hard and they've come back and they're prepared and they have a wonderful testimony of the atonement and the Savior and, and you see 15 men raise their arm and sustain the council that they should be coming back into full fellowship and then, and then we say amen and what happens in the next little while is incredibly touching. A lot of tears, a lot of hugs, uh, just an outpouring of the Spirit. And it's not just the brethren hugging the one that has come back, but it's like we end up hugging each other. There, there is this, uh, there is this sense of, uh, it's kind of a spiritual gemutlichite. Gemutlichite is kind of the worldly version uh, that the Germans have at Oktoberfest, you know, where everybody's drunk and they're kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody's loving each other and we're all drunk. <laughs> well, this is the spiritual side of this where we're loving each other, but there's no beer involved. <laughs> And, and we're just having a we're just having a great time uh, because of the worth of a soul and the saving of a soul and how individually we focus and then you go to bishopric meetings or relief society meetings or ward mission meetings and just or, or meeting between uh, two home teachers or visiting teachers and it's all focused on saving the soul and not just saving souls in mass but saving them one at a, at a time. Yeah. You also look at some of the programs and initiatives of the church. We have addiction recovery programs. Yes. We have, you know, self reliance in the building house that all some of those things help the temporal, but they have to get help at temporal in order to get to the spiritual. It's all about the spiritual. It is, and it's there. Um, I, I, like, for, for instance, this next week we're going to have a state conference in the Plano State, but then afterwards I'm meeting, we're, we're beginning the, the spousal support group for the addiction recovery program. Uh, I'll actually work out of my office uh, on Sunday nights, but after all those meetings, then I've got three wonderful ladies and we're going to meet in, in my office and, and start planning, how do we save more souls? How do, we, how do we reach out to people that are struggling in a very hard time in their life? And we're going to take time away from our families to do it. But we're all excited about getting it started. It's about souls. Now, I think it's interesting when we start talking about how to... So what we're getting is, and I want you to see a pattern. Here is a loving father who's watched his son struggle. And you're going to see, and I want to talk today a little bit about what I think the nature of the struggle really was. And it's more than just this kid was on a mission and he went off and did something he shouldn't have and we, he got sent home. It's much more extensive than that and it has much more bigger influence as to why he did it. Uh, but in, in, but the, the worth of a soul and how you rescue a soul is the same. So let's go to uh, Alma 39, 10. <coughs> Look at how he's going to approach this. Because here's, the, here's, the, here's your job. You're a parent. You've got uh, a child that's really struggling, an adult child. They are open to hearing you, which is kind of key one. <laughs> They're willing to listen. And that now with that as a backdrop, look at how Alma goes about saving his soul and saving his son in a way that was very effective. 
Uh, I always say to parents, especially uh, those that have teens that are struggling, if you're going to sit down and you're going to talk to your kid and you did 80% of the talking, that wasn't a discussion, that was a lecture. <laughs> And most of the time when we're doing that, we're going to sound like the adults in all the Charlie Brown cartoons. What they say, I don't know, they were just yelling. I know, because I asked him, did your dad talk to you about that? Yeah, what did he say? I don't know. He was yelling, he was upset. Okay. they got to be able to hear it and listen how he suggested that. I think it's very subtle. I command you to take upon you to do what? In trying, starting to, this process of coming back and repairing and repenting and replenishing. What does he say? I command you to do what? Counsel with your brothers. Okay, stop. Why? When he say, I am your father, Luke. No, no, I am your father. <laughs> I am the high priest, I am a prophet, listen to me, I have great counsel and wisdom, and I've been speaking with angels, listen to me. What, why is he of all this, he's saying, counsel with your brothers, Helaman, Shiblom, why? Why would he do that? Listen to them. Why would he listen to them? Because he doesn't see them as authority figures. Yes, doesn't necessarily see them as authority figures. When somebody's struggling, who do we want them to listen to? Well, but they won't listen to anybody. Who will they listen to? Someone they love. Someone they love. Someone they respect. And I think Alma did a very smart thing here, because it could have been that he would hear things from Helaman that he wouldn't hear from his dad. So, his, so he's going to start off with counsel with your brothers. Your brothers love you. They will help you. And sometimes other sources can say things that we can't. So you're always looking for who will you listen to? Who will you take counsel from? So now he's going to do it interestingly enough. And I, I just love his terminology here. Every word is pretty weighted. Counsel with your elder brother in your undertakings, for behold, thou art in your youth, and you stand in need of... What, what form will this counsel take? Isn't that a great word? Here's a, here's a kid that is struggling with his faith, struggling with things that he's heard, and his dad is saying, counsel with your brothers, and they will do what? Nourish you. Nourish you. How often when, I mean, I, I, I get it. If we have people, uh, especially our kids, or, or, and, and we just want to, I want to take a baseball bat to them. <laughs> I want to just beat it, you know. I want to send an angel, rock the, rock the ground, and scare the heck out of them, you know. Father, I don't want to pray for adversity for this kid, but some adversity might be a good idea. I'm not counseling you, but I'm just suggesting that if you could make life hard for him a little while, like, you know, Break his gaming device, that would be awesome. You know, have our internet go down for about two weeks, that would be cool. I want adversity so this kid will learn. You know, how many of you have been on a, have, have gone out on a, a youth trek, whether it's, uh, it's some kind of pioneer trek or something like that, and it rains, and you're secretly going, ooh, I hope there's a lot of mud. 
Oh, we want mud. We want hardship. We want, we want it to be hard because adversity is what's going to get their attention. Because they won't listen to anybody else. We, we want a little blood. Not much, but just enough. And he says, son, I want you to listen to your sons or to your brothers and they are going to nourish you. Okay? Let me ask, so what, is, what does nourishing look like to somebody who is repenting? It's not preaching. A listening ear. You're li- they're talking, you're listening. What's that? Yeah, you're creating a safe place. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Okay. Encouragement. Encouragement. Uh, feeding them correct principles in a way that they can absorb them. The word nourish tends to, we tend to equate that with food and nutrition. So it is the taking in of something that's going to leave your body in a better place. So if you're going to nourish somebody, they are taking in something that's being provided. You think it's an accident when we talk about that uh, uh, the, the act of um, being filled with faith in Alma 32, the imagery goes to partake, planting fruit and partaking of fruit and eating of the free of, tree of life and going to the marriage of the lamb uh, and partaking of the sacrament and the living water and the living bread. How much of the imagery that the Savior gives us is about nourishing us and being nourished? And when we fast, we go without food and then we're really stressed because we're waiting to be nourished again. We want to be fed. Yeah. Well, you know, we had a... Uh, I had, when my children were young, I always had a little saying on my refrigerator and it said, they may never remember a thing you say to them, but they will always remember how you treated them. Yeah. Yeah. And the things you fed them. <laughs> the things we take in. Okay. Yeah. And, well, and and I don't know. I'm I'm associating that with that is that is life saving. It is life saving. It's life saving. And to not have nourishment is we die. We die. That's a great point. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that the Lord set it up so that our our bodies, our physical bodies, we're not like camels. <laughs> <laughs> we eat or drink, and then we don't need anything for like two months. All the time. We have to eat daily. And we have to make decisions daily about what we put in our body. And if we go too long, we don't do well. Okay? So, again, I just think that's a powerful kind of thing. So, all right. So, so part of what he's trying to set up here is how do we save a soul? And number one, how we're going to do it, we're going to have them listen to somebody that they respect who will then nourish them in a way that they will take into their body uh, and that it, it will feed them uh, in a way that they will feel full. Okay, so let's back up a little bit then. So, so let, let's go back to the top because here's the question and it, it is what is it that, what happened to Corianton? And if we put it in the right context, we'll understand how he had to be nourished. And you're going to actually, if you look at it closely, it is so applicable to today and to many of what's going on in our own families. 
Um, all right, so that I got this, so that I would know, I, I went through, uh, actually on the plane last night, <laughs> that's fun. Uh, I, I, I started, I realized a, a, a while back that as I was listening to, do, do we, how do we know what Corianton was struggling with? The father talks about the harlot. Okay, but he went to the harlot, but he, take a step back even from that. That's the act. His father was inspired. He said, I perceive. I perceive what? That you're struggling with this. Yes. Yes, there you go. All the way through what's happening, you'll know what Corianton was struggling with. Listen to the questions that, that Alma is posing. I perceive that your mind is struggling with and puts it out there. And then the next chapter, I perceive that you are struggling with this. And then I perceive, and, and I, you're, you're worried about this, and you're worried about this, and you're worried about this. And you get a list of the things that Corianton was struggling with. The result, I believe, was the visit to, to the harlot Isabel. But what we what he was struggling with over here is what set him up to go that to go there, and we find out what he's struggling with by uh, the questions. Apparently, he's asking Alma, and Alma is responding. Some Alma knows, some Corianton has asked him. Does that make sense? Where did we get all of the parable? When we look at the Savior in the New Testament, where do the parables come from? Question. From a question. There was always a question. Corianton is asking questions. Alma is responding to those questions and it tells you what Corianton is struggling with. Okay? Is that, is, that, is that clear? When you understand what he's struggling with, you understand what he's really struggling with. And then, and then actually, the experience with Isabel the harlot makes perfect sense because it's part of the overall package. Okay? And I realized that I started correlating it to the teachings of Korahor. If you go back to Alma 30, you'll find that Korahor was teaching some things and that everything that Korahor is teaching, Corianton was struggling with. Let me give you an example. So I've got it in red and I put, I put above it Alma 30, so I'm, I'm connecting it back here. Uh, in Alma 30, uh, Corianton is teaching that every man prospered according to his genius. Uh, and that every man conquered according to his strength. Nice. Well, look at, look at what Corianton's struggling with in verse 2. Alma says, Thou didst not give heed to my words, as did thy brother among the people of the, the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. And that's probably an awkward phrase. But here's where I'm, I'm watching you struggle. Thou didst go on in boasting in what? Strength and wisdom. I am stronger and smarter. Not that we've ever dealt with teenagers that believe that they were stronger and smarter. Okay? But, so that's true. There's a natural propensity in the youth. Uh, I promise you, our 20-something millennials living right now will tell you the same thing we did when we were 22. 
We are the smartest, brightest, most powerful, insightful, uh, promising generation this world has ever seen. Just ask us. Nobody knows what we know and you guys are old and you've lost it. So it falls to us to have to tell you what needs to happen. And tell me you didn't do that at 22. We are better, smarter, stronger. More ins we are more educated. And so you take somebody that is in that place originally, and then if he's going to start listening to the Korahor doctrine, which is actually the Nahor doctrine, which is actually the underfooting for the Gadianton robbers, and the king men that we're going to begin to deal with in, in the next few chapters... There's a belief in those that are fighting against Christ that they know what? More than the, the silly, simple Christians who believe in, in silly fables and they don't get it. And there, it's not about humility for them. Who is it that prospers? The brightest the strongest, the most powerful, the most insightful, and that is me. It is me. And the, for the athletes that, that we deal with today in, in professional sports, it's about bowing up, it's about talking smack, it's about being in charge, it's about being smarter and better than everybody else, and don't disrespect me because I'm smarter than you and I'm a better athlete. <laughs> Okay, and so the Korahor doctrine for somebody of uh, for Coriantin, just a little bit younger, this is a perfect fit. Because you know what, your dad doesn't really know very much. I know he's stuck on all this stuff. It's the old stuff. The really new good stuff is, you're smarter, you're better, you're stronger. You should be able to do more. Don't get stuck in all of that kind of stuff. Isn't church kind of boring? Church. Are you kidding me? Let's go do something cool. Let's get out of here. Go to seminary. Are you out of your mind? Why would you get... Only stupid people get up at 6 a.m. <laughs> Smart people hang out till 2 a.m. and get drunk. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, so there's number one. Um, every man prospered according to his genius... Every man conquered according to his strength. I think Corianton had bought into that idea. So he's, gonna, he's starting to lift himself up. Now, a number of prophets, including uh, Elder C.S. Lewis of the Quorum of the Twelve, <laughs> of heaven, <laughs> has said the number one sin in the universe is what? Pride. Is there, any other, is there any other sin that we can think of that supersedes pride? Do all other sins come from pride? Yeah. That is the linchpin, isn't it? Wasn't that the first thing that led Lucifer uh, to begin his attack in heaven? Well, and I think jealousy goes right in there with it. Yeah. Coveting. Coveting and all those kind of things are spinning off of pride. It's a sense that I should have more. It's not fair. Um, <laughs> I had a th th this week as I'm standing at the uh, service counter 
at the uh, on, on the on the ship, <laughs> and and there's a if you ever been on a cruise there there's the service deck or the service desk you can ask whatever you want okay um, and then there's a one on the, the end that is for the the platinum guests oh. it's for the special people <laughs> and and so everybody else is in line because they're having to get certain questions asked. I've got to get to the group service lady who's helping set up my rooms and all that kind of thing say so um, so I'm looking at this long line, and I st and I stepped and I mentioned it to one of the ladies. I need to talk to the group service person, and she says, "Why don't you come down to the end, and I'll I'll get her. I'll go get Anna." Okay, great. So I go over. That puts me in the platinum spot, <laughs> and I'm standing there, and. Just as I'm walking up to wait for, for Anna to come talk to me, a gentleman comes in behind me and he goes, are you platinum? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, actually he said, are you diamond? A diamond, yes. Yeah, and I said, yeah. <laughs> I have 50 people here. How many do you, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> So I stood there, and then, and then they finally came out, and how ticked was he? Oh. <laughs> Afterward, oh, I think you should know. <laughs> you just hear the steam rising from Mr. Diamond behind me, who was just like, I am more special than you. What are you doing? Standing in my line. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> of course, it wasn't like I said, but I have 50 and you have one. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had done his prayers on the Ramiampton that night. I think he had just got off the Ramiampton, yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's the next one. This is not all, my son. Thou didst do what was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake thy ministry and go into the land of Siron, among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. Okay. Now, it turns out, Alma 30, 18, the, the doctrine that, Corio, that Korahor was teaching results in leading away many women, also men, to commit whoredoms, telling them that when a man was dead, that was the end thereof. So one of the advantages of the Korahor doctrine is you could really do, if you're bigger and stronger and smarter, you can really kind of do what whatever you want to do. What about those little itsy bitsy, I don't know, Ten Commandment things and part of the Law of Moses? Okay, Korahor was not a Deuteronomist. This was not about strictly living the Law of Moses. This was about his own law. Yes, it's my own law. And I can have my own law. Why? Because I'm better. Because I'm better. That the law is for the little people. This is this is for the stronger and the smarter. Little people keep the keep the commandments. The bigger people can transcend the commandments because they know better. Well, and that's following the natural man. I oh yeah. Take over. Yeah, hold on to the natural man because we're about to. There is a we're about to find when we when uh, when we get to uh, we'll see if we get to it today. Alma forty one, talking about. Um, 
the, the wickedness never was happiness is because there's no happiness in natural man. Which they don't understand at the time because it all, it all feels good. Okay? That is for saying. Now, I am a little curious. One of the things that we don't know, let me put it in as a side note. Um, explaining that uh, he went among the borders of the Lamanites. Uh, one of the things that we know, was there a little town near the border of the, of the Lamanites? Isn't that where they were serving their mission? To the Zoramites. Remember, the Zoramites are right on the border, uh, right near the, the, the land of Nephi. And one of the things, in addition to the Ramiampton that they were doing, is that they were worshiping idols. Now, the, the, it's fascinating to me. He could have said, you just went off and committed whoredoms. But the fact that he went out and committed whoredoms uh, with the harlot Isabel is kind of a red flag. Because is there a history in the world about harlots by the name of Isabel? There is. And it's in Baal worship. Okay? That idol worshipers would have... Uh, and, and they took... Um, Baal worshipers took the original belief in the tree of life. The idea of a heavenly mother connected to a tree of life. And they moved it over to the groves and the worshiping of idols and fertility rites all associated in the groves. It's one of the reasons why Josiah went to great lengths and eliminated all the tree of life. He was trying to get rid of the Baal worshippers who were doing what they shouldn't be doing in the woods with, with uh, temple prostitutes. So this wasn't, in all likelihood, we don't know for sure, but this is a red flag and the, flag, the fact that Mormon left it in would suggest to me this wasn't simply like he, he fell in love with a prospective convert and did something, or he stopped in at a, in the red light district in, in, uh, among the Zoramites. If you're smarter and brighter and people seem to be getting rich in certain areas, there, this suggests that there may have been more in terms of idol worship and the possibility of getting involved in idol worshiper and possible, and we don't know how much of Baal worship came, but they were getting access to it enough that there's a pretty good chance. So now you begin to get a sense, begin to get a flavor. This wasn't just, this was a lazy missionary who started fooling around on his mission. This is somebody who's listening to Korahor and following after the idol worshippers. Now what kind of picture do we begin to, what starts to emerge? This is kind of an apostasy thing. You're, you're watching somebody having a faith crisis. There's a whole different way of life that I'm, I'm taking on here. This isn't just laziness. Could also have been curiosity. We seem to be pretty poor, Dad. They seem to be doing well. They seem to be making lots of money and they're wearing great clothes. They got guest jeans and Mom made mine. <laughs> so yeah, it could easily have been curiosity. And not only that, Dad's about going to, in a chapter, is going to say, remember, wickedness never was happiness. Well... <laughs> They look like I saw the beer commercials, Dad. They look pretty happy to me. 
so how is it, are you saying when you said there's Isabel then is, is that a goddess or is that a... Isabel was, uh, 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 Astra was the uh, cohort of Baal. She was the female part of that. So where, where Baal was bringing in uh, rain and they kind of the rain god and so we're going to rely on him for crops, she was the fertility side of it. So she's the one that's bringing in... Uh, the, the, the ground will be fertile, the people will be fertile, and then you have temple prostitutes, and so they're going to have rites involving sexuality and stuff like that in the groves. Okay. Are you saying that Isabella is another name for Astra? Yeah, uh, under the Baal worship. Astra? Yeah. And, and it, it is a play on uh, Asherah. Uh, Asherah was actually, in the ancient religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was kind of the name of the mother of God. So they were stealing. Remember, Satan doesn't ever do anything original. He just borrows. He steals. And that's what the Baal worshiper, the idol worshippers had done, is that they were stealing off of all of this. Okay? Alright. We'll give you another one. So I, I think what's happening is he's following, he's following into whatever Korahor was teaching, either by curiosity or by zealousness. He's following all of this. Um, now, Alma's going to say this interestingly, and, there, and I realized only after I went back and I looked at Korahor's stuff why Alma said what he said. Uh, for behold, talking about sin, uh, you, well, go back to five. You know that what you did was most abominable of all other sins except for the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. So we're, this is where we get the, the concept that maybe adultery is number three on the, on the you know, most wanted list, most abhorred list. <coughs> Save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. For behold, he says... If you deny the Holy Ghost when it has place in you, and you know that you deny it, there's a key. Anybody who denies the Holy Ghost is like, I'm doing it, and I know I'm doing it. I don't know that I've ever known anybody personally in my life that ever qualifies for denial of the Holy Ghost. We just don't have enough knowledge. There's even some question whether Judas Iscariot even knew enough. Uh, I don't think he did personally with all due respects to James Talmadge. For behold, if you deny the Holy Ghost when it has place in you, and you know you deny it, behold, that's a sin that's unpardonable. Yea, whosoever murdereth, listen to this phrase, murdereth against the light and knowledge of God. Okay, give me, take that phrase. Whosoever murdereth against the light and, and knowledge of God. Say that, say that differently in one word. Apostasy. No, not, apo not necessarily apostasy. What would we have to do to murder against the light and knowledge of God? Uh, deny. deny. No, not that far. Have it well, to deny your testimony. Okay, listen close. It's not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. We have all, I, I promise you, everybody in this room has murdered against the light and knowledge of God. We call that sin. That 
That's a, that is a fabulous way to describe sin, isn't it? When we sin against the greater knowledge of what we have, you knew you shouldn't have taken that second piece of cake. You knew it, and you did it anyway. <laughs> You knew as you were standing there, kind of doing some gossiping, you knew you shouldn't be doing it, but you did it anyway. I love the fact that he takes it to the point of saying, when we, when we do that, we murdereth against the light and knowledge of God. It's not easy uh, when, when, those, when those sins are of bigger import, like, like a moral sin. We're murdering against the light and knowledge of God, and it's not easy to obtain forgiveness. But he's also saying, and it is possible, but yea, I say unto you, my son, that it's not easy for you to obtain forgiveness either, because in what you've done, you've murdered against the light and knowledge. Yeah. So he's not literally talking about murder? No, he really isn't. Isn't that great? Murder against the light and knowledge. Now, somebody who would murder, literally murder, yeah, they're murdering against the light and knowledge too. But I also think that when we sin against what we know, in a sense, we are murdering our spirit. We're murdering, we, we may be involving somebody that we're murdering a lot of things against the light and knowledge. That's why, now, I, I believe that he's using this word exactly because if we go back to Korahor, one of the things that Mormon is telling us is that Korahor could teach whatever he wanted as long as he didn't murder, because they can't lock him up for that. That's why in, in Alma 30.10 it says, but if he murdered, he was punished unto death. And I can hear, uh, I can hear Korahor, at least at some early stage in his conversation with his dad, going, okay, but at least I didn't murder anybody. That, I, didn't, I didn't go against the King Benjamin Five. Okay, wait a minute, maybe I did. <laughs> Which was, And one of the King Benjamin Five laws was that you don't commit adultery. But at least I didn't murder. And Alma says, when you sin, you murder against the light and knowledge of God. It's just, it's just so beautifully done. Yes, you did murder. Well, it was adultery. Yes, you murdered. Well, I did? Yes. I guess the light and knowledge of God. Oh. Okay. So it's not only when you do that, do you fill your own spirit, but you people Yeah, and in this case, he's going to say, because, hey, you murdered their spirits in a way, because when they saw your conduct, they wouldn't believe what I was saying. Yeah, exactly right. And you murder opportunities that you could do to be able to serve and help. And, you know, you might murder future generations in terms of your spirit because the things you do affect those around you and your kids. I mean, on and on and on and on. You did a bunch of murdering. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Why do you think he repeats that phrase? Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, he could have just stopped. With he could have, couldn't he? Um... This is, we'll get into it later, Craig, but I think this is natural speak that, that, that we were talking about. I think this was an incidental in his, okay? Yeah. yeah. Was, it, was it Alma the Younger who also used that phraseology in talking about himself or his 
Yes, he did. You're right. This is Alma the Younger. And, and you're right. When he talked, yes, he did. That, that part of his, and I think it's in Alma 36, where he talks about that when I was going about, oh yeah, hold on. You're right. You're right, you're right, you're right. Um, um, Was it Alma 36 or did you say it to... Uh, uh, yes, 14. Yea, I had murdered many of his children. Thank you. I, I missed that one too. And then, so he's saying, so what he's saying is, yeah, I didn't murder anybody. Uh, son, I did. And so did you. In our acts, even though we didn't kill them and their blood ran out... <laughs> We murdered them. I had murdered many of his children, or rather, led them away into destruction. Yeah, thank you, Cindy. All right. A couple more, and then, then we'll... Um, I say one more. It is right here. Down in 17. Here's another one. Now, my son, I will ease your mind somewhat on this subject of when, when this person may be coming, when Christ may be coming. Behold, you marvel why these things should be known so long beforehand. Behold, I say unto you, it is not a soul at this time as precious unto God as a soul will be at his coming. In other words... What is it that Corianton was having a hard time understanding after listening to Korahor's doctrine? How can anybody really know what's happening in the future? We can do what we want to do because we don't believe there's a Christ that's coming. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Come on. Do whatever you want to do. Because, because to everybody else to say, well, uh, I can't go commit adultery because I'm going to be punished for it and God is coming in the future. If you can say, well, God isn't coming in the future, there is no God and there is no future. Do whatever you want to do. He says, how can anybody know? Uh, because that doctrine was, Alma 30, 13, Oh, ye that are bound unto this foolish and vain hope. Why do you yoke yourself with such foolish things? Why do you look for a Christ? For no man can know if anything is to come. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Now, why is this important? Because it is right at this point, and this is fascinating to me, I think, um, Here's where we get, this probably came out of their mission training, and that is, why exactly are we going to teach the Zoramites? There were two main reasons that they went over and above the normal, we should preach the gospel and try and save souls. There were two very specific things that, Nephi, that uh, Alma wanted done among the Zoramites. Number one, we got to get to the Zoramites. They're on the land with the, close to the Lamanites. And if we don't stop them, they will mix with the Lamanites and they will attack us. 
We have the people in Jershon behind us, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They are in the buffer area. We have to make sure they stay stalwart. They are our first line of defense as the Lamanites may pour out and hit these people that are peaceful and will just die rather than defend themselves. <coughs> So we got it. So, we, so from a strategic standpoint, we have to con make sure the Zoramites aren't going off the rails. Uh, did they? Yes. Did they mix with the Lamanites? Yes. Did they attack uh, the land of Jershon? Yes. Did, did the anti-Lephi-Lephites have to move? Yes. And then we got the next, all the war chapters that come after this in the book of Alma are all built on the fact that the Zoramites did exactly what Alma was afraid they would do. Not many. The, the, remember, it was the poor Zoramites, the poorer ones, as they accept uh, and they, they start, oh, we like the tree planting the seed thing. That's cool. Yeah, we'll convert. The poor ones that couldn't get into the Ramiampton, they migrated north up into Jershon. And they did that, and then the Zoramites said, that's not fair. You should kick them out. They should be punished. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, then we'll mix with the Lamanites and come attack you. <laughs> So that was goal number one. But, listen, but there's a very subtle second reason why Alma is wanting to preach to the Zoramites. And it has to do with this ability to see into the future. Listen to this. Oh, now my son, verse 16. This was the ministry unto which ye were called. Here is our mission goal. To declare these glad tidings unto this people to prepare their minds. Uh, or rather, that salvation might come unto them that they may do what? Prepare the minds of their children to hear the word when? At the time of his coming. Now look at the top of the chapter. What year is this? 73 B.C. When does the Savior come? 32. Yeah, 34. So, so they're 100 years away. So Alma is working off of the belief that we have to bring the Zoramites to, 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 uh, to be saved, salvation, so that they can do what? So that they can prepare their kids for what? Christ coming. And he will come in their lifetime, probably, if the hundred years works. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but, it, but Alma at least believed that there were going to be these younger Zoramites that needed to be taught by their parents so that they would be ready for the coming, to, or that they would grow up into people that would then have kids and prepare them because they would stand in front of the Savior. With that, in other words, he's saying it's that, it's that close. Yeah, Sean. Yeah. Kind of interesting, but as you point this out, it's Yeah, that's a great point. 
No, and if we're not necessarily sure, if we can't see it with our own eyes right now, and they're saying, here's what's coming, well, okay, I guess I can put that off, but I'm not sure. I, you're kind of old. <laughs> Prophets are old. What do they know? It's a fuddy-duddy. He, he doesn't get it. Yeah, we love denial. Yes. Yeah. In my mind, the greatest example of that is when President Hinckley started talking about the seven kind, the fat years. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Years, and here's this old man talking about in the midst of plenty that you know you need to be prepared. Just say. How about how about 1995? We're going to declare the family proclamation. Husbands and wives should get married, and 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 we're looking at it going. That's nice. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We're always together. We wear pearls to dinner. But what are we doing there? That we need it. So, uh, so from time to time, I always do. I, I have the ten-year rule that you're going to really see the full import of it about ten years later. You watch this, and so I just think the uh, the family proclamation thing is just really kind of amazing. Um, so listen to what closely what the prophets are saying because they are they are the watchmen on the tower. They're, they're seeing what's coming out there. Okay. Um, all right. So, so does this make sense? What, what we're getting here is a young man who has gotten mixed up in another philosophy, and that is the teachings of Korahor. Um, and and the thing that I find fascinating about this is that um, the uh, Zoramites weren't really hardcore Nahors. They, they, they're, they're mixing their own stuff, but they're still worshiping. But they have elements of that's one of the one of the aspects the Zoramite when, when we talked about they created their own religion, it, it has a pretty good dose of Nahorism. And it's pulled in some idolatry. And it's pulled in and whatever whoever uh, young Corianton was talking to as a young missionary, he got caught up in some of this and got and and got either curious or zealous and just got and so he's gone down that track. This is a faith crisis, as much as anything. Not that anybody anybody in this room have a family member that's kind of going through faith crisis. Yeah. Just a second. Raise your hands really high. If you have a member of your family that has left the church or struggling, look around. There it is. This is big time now. This is what we're dealing with. And so all of this stuff about how we nourish and how we, who they're listening to and we're going to teach them and, give, and answer their questions, this is all applicable to our members of our family that are struggling with a faith crisis. This should be hitting really home to us. Because they're going to end up doing things that we don't want them to do, but it's part of that belief system that they've kind of got sucked into. I'm, I never see... Any of you kind of joined the church for the past... How, how wonderful does coffee taste? Yeah. Yeah. 
when you first start drinking, when you first start drinking coffee, it is like or beer, either one of those. Those wonderful tasting things. Or root beer. Well, yeah, it's not root beer. Well, I mean, like the South, South Americans, they cannot understand for the lifetime what these Americans think of, are thinking. Oh, thinking root beer, yes. But I'm, it's just fascinating to me. Coffee is the nastiest, I mean, nasty stuff. And if you, these days, if you have a faith crisis and you're going to walk away from the Mormon church, what's the first thing you got to do? Uh-huh. Buy a coffee pot. You, it's like, you have, and it's like they're drinking it. <laughs> but this is what non-Mormons drink, I guess. <laughs> but it smells good. But it smells good. Or, or, or it's like, I'm going to go out because I'm, not, I'm no longer a Mormon. I'm going to go out and drink beer. <laughs> But this is what non-Mormons drink. <laughs> if I'm going to be them and be smarter and more educated and not one of the dumb sheeple over there, i got to drink nasty stuff. <laughs> this beer is nasty. Oh, you'll develop a taste for it. Okay. So if I drink this enough, that means I just get used to drinking nasty stuff. Yes, that's what, that's what happiness is. Not having to... Because you got to leave the church, now you get to drink nasty stuff. It'll be, and you'll develop a taste for really nasty stuff. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm a convert. I joined the church when I was Uh huh, yeah. Coffee drinker and alcohol drinking most of my life. Yeah. I can tell you that, uh, you know, those things you really can train because I grew up in a household that we have coffee smell. So when I marry my husband, uh, honestly, today, even I walk past by Starbucks, I love the smell. Love the smell of Starbucks, yeah. My husband always feels that that smell disgusting. So what I learned is uh, our body is, very, is a mystery. We can train our body. You know, like I, want, I grew up in that environment, so it made me feel those things are nice and taste good. And it never go away, but I train myself after I join the church. I know I shouldn't drink, although I know how they taste. Sure. I just want to share. Anybody, when, when you were little or non-member or when you were being stupid, anybody smoke a cigarette? Yeah. That first cigarette? <laughs> I remember when we were little, we thought we'd be cool, and we'd go out into the out out into the uh, the uh, field, and you get like the little um, stick things that have a hole through them. Yeah. It's like we're going to be cool, and so we, I remember me and my buddies were out there. Somebody got some matches. It was right before we lit the place on fire. <laughs> We were out there because we were we were going to be cool and smoke, okay, you know, and so we lit those things up and you pull that stuff in there and you go, oh man. But if I but if I'm no longer a Mormon, I can I can enjoy the nasty stuff. Yeah. A story similar to the first. When I was a teenager, I took a bus to school, and we used to pass the Folgers. Uh, canning plant in San Francisco every day. Yeah. And I used to think, boy, that smells really good. Oh, yeah. And later on... But it's forbidden, you know. Well, before I joined... Oh, before I joined. Okay, go ahead. I I, uh, had an opportunity to to try coffee. And I thought, man, that smells so good. And it was terrible. (laughs) It was the nastiest stuff. And I went home and told my mom and I said, 
hey, I had some coffee at work today, and it's really bad. And she says, well, you have to develop a taste. <laughs> yes, you do. And I said, if I yeah. have to work at it, I ain't doing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 really, the, the really good stuff, you know, the first time you taste it is like, uh, Cindy and I had lunch th this week, and we had conch fritters. Holy cow, that's, that's awesome stuff. But we didn't have to develop a taste for it. We just, from day one, you just go, oh man. It's the meat inside a conch shell. I'm telling you, it's wonderful on a fritter. Anyway, um, you don't have to develop a taste for that at all. It's there right from the beginning. Okay. I didn't know how far uh, we would get today. Um, so let me let me start this discussion. We'll see how far we get. We might end up finishing it next week. Uh, in my lifetime, I've watched this interesting swing within the church about how we handle salvation. Uh, and certainly, when I was when I was growing up, the emphasis was really heavily on works very much about works. And as we were as we were talking about, we've talked about in the past, if you're going to read uh, uh, King Benjamin, King Benjamin's understanding in trying to bring those people along was that, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to be saved by works, and it says saved by works. And those that are, and if you have righteous works, you go to heaven. If you have bad works, you go to an everlasting hell, and mercy can't save you. Okay, that was the belief at that time. And it was for King Benjamin, and it certainly was in the earlier days of this church, even since, you know, I've been alive, uh, which has now been 60 years, which is weird. Um, but now, but we've watched this swing start to, uh, to occur, and it started to happen, uh, kind of watched it pick up some steam in the early 90s, uh, Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ, was kind of an interesting, it seemed to me to be one of the first pebbles rolling down the hill, saying, maybe it's not works. Maybe, maybe we're saved by grace after all we can do, which is never enough. At the end of the day, maybe we're saved by grace. Don't know. Okay? Um, and we started to get this swing more towards at the end of the day, we can never earn our way into heaven, which was always the, the accusation that so many Christian sects had against Mormons saying we're saved by works. And then basically we were saying we can earn our way into heaven. If I'm perfect enough, I really don't need the atonement because I earned my way in. I kept all the commandments. I lived all the ordinances. I lived a perfect life. Thank you, Savior. Save the atonement for somebody who needs it. I got this covered. I did it my own dang self. And if I don't get there, and if, I, and if I'm not doing well enough, I'll probably end up in the terrestrial kingdom because I just haven't done enough. I've kind of get, I'm earning about a B, B plus, B, that's terrestrial kingdom. So, um, that, because that's what I earned and that's what I did. And then Christians would say, no, it's all about Jesus and he saved you. And then they go, they swing way far the other way. Just say you believe in your home. Because it's never about works. Okay? So there's been this academic kind of struggle. And we're watching, 
We're watching at the moment where our, our, as a church, our spiritual growth is understood much more powerfully, the power of grace. That we never earn our way into heaven. That for all of us that struggle with some perfectionism, it, it, we're never going to do enough. I can't do enough. No, you can't. It's about grace. Now, one of the things that I've, I've been learning reading uh, Alma is that I believe that Alma has bridged this debate perfectly. Perfectly. And he may have understood some things better than some of the later prophets did in some of our writing. If you, if you catch this, it is just it's magnificent the way that he bridges this. We'll get as far as we can. Okay, let's, so let's, let's go to Alma 40. Now, if, if, Cor, if Corianton is starting to get that maybe Korahor's stuff wasn't completely right, and I may have done some, some things that I shouldn't, doesn't the next question make perfect sense? Now, my son... There is something more I would say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Why would he be worried about the resurrection of the dead? Because he'd been reading King Benjamin. <laughs> you know, my works were awful. All I deserve is an endless hell with no mercy that, that can reach me to an everlasting darkness. Yeah, I, can, I perceive you're a little worried about that. Okay. Now, I would say unto you, and then Alma himself has had some questions. Man, I'm just not sure. Uh, I would say there's no resurrection. When does the resurrection come? What about this incorruption? Comes until after the coming of Christ, but he hasn't been here. He brings the resurrection. Uh, now, I unfold unto you, verse 3, a mystery. Why was it a mystery? Because he didn't know yet. Not only that, but Alma didn't know yet. So Alma has some questions about one resurrection or two. When is that? Is that immediately after we die or later on? I'm not sure. So he did what prophets do, which is ask. Prophets ask. I unfold unto you a mystery. Verse 3, Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept, and no one knoweth. But I will show you the one thing which I have inquired diligently of God, that I might know concerning the resurrection. And then he's going to go on. There is a time appointed. When this time comes, no one knows. Uh, whether it be one time or a third time, I don't know. It mattereth not. God knoweth these things. By the way, was that ever revealed? Whether it's a one resurrection or two, and when it is, when was that revealed? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith got the full range of it, but he didn't know then. And Joseph Smith had to ask in 1831 at the John Johnson home before he got that filled in. Okay? All right. It matters not. Now, here's what I know. There is a space 
There must be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of resurrection. That is moving forward what King Benjamin understood. And now I would require what becometh of the souls of men from this time between dying and resurrecting. What's going on in that space of time that we call the spirit world, but this was just being revealed to Alma in 73 BC. So he's still learning. What, what happens during this time? Um, there's a time, they're appointed, and during this space of time, uh, I've inquired diligently, and this thing, verse 9, is the thing which I do know. Oh, I, I, I now got it. Now concerning this all, it's been made, how did he know? Look at verse 11. How did he know? By an angel. Isn't that fascinating? The really important stuff tend to come from angels. So you've got to get it so you can... The beautiful thing about an angel having like this personal teacher, this personal tutor, is that the angel says something and then you actually have time to ask and learn and gather information. I think you can have an interview with, with an angel. Uh, and when the time, okay, this, and this is the thing that I do know. Eleven has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they're departed from this mortal body, the spirits of all men, whether they're good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. Those that are righteous are received into a state of happiness, a paradise, a state of peace. Now, the evil at that moment don't have any portion of the Spirit of God. Uh, boy, I love the word that he uses. They chose evil works over good, therefore the spirit of the devil did enter them and took possession of their house. Great word. To, coming from a prophet. He took possession of their house. Okay? Now, here is the best description, and I have to tell you, this is, I love this description of those that are in uh, what we might call spirit prison. That in order to have spirit prison, uh, I have to begin to get an understanding that the things I did were wrong. There are an awful lot of people that when they begin to repent, and the full power of, of godly sorrow begins to descend on them, they begin to see, get a glimpse of spirit prison. What does spirit prison look like? What does it feel like? Listen to Alma's description of what this is. Now, this is the states of the souls of the wicked. And again, I would say to you, it could happen on this side of the veil as easily as it could happen on the other side of the veil. Easily. This is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness. A state of awful, fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. When we have a debate in this country about torture, and one of the, the most effective forms of torture we have found has been waterboarding. And the question is whether waterboarding is torture or not. That's a debate for another time. Sam Johnson says no. He was, he was tortured. John McCain says yes. He was, he was in the same prison. They have different opinions about whether waterboarding is torture. But why would waterboarder, why is waterboarding so um, impactive? 
Is that a word? Impactful. Why? As I understand it, not having done it. In the times that I've done it, yes. It, it appears to be effective because the people began to fear that they are going to die. Mm -hmm. And just at the moment when they feel like they're going to die, they're raised up. Yes. So the, then they stop. Question. No answer. Boom. Yeah. But, but in that moment, they've gone through this terrible, horrible feeling. Right. They're going to die. They're going to suffocate. Then they stop. Then they go, okay, so where is the bomb? Who's doing the planning? There's space. And it's like, now if you don't, what are we going to do? We're going to bring that feeling back to you again. So at that moment, they're having a, a uh, awful, fearful looking for this, this feeling. And it isn't happening at the moment. It's simply anticipation. How much power is there, mothers, in anticipating the future? When you anticipate something that may happen, Cindy and I were just sure we're going to take 50 people through four countries and we're going to leave somebody somewhere. <laughs> and and we, we worked ourselves silly over, oh my gosh, we're going to leave somebody behind. <laughs> By the way, did we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> and to loop, but it turned out we had a second car that could pick them up and take them. <laughs> but we had this worry about what's going to happen. We're going to leave somebody behind. And, and my body at that moment doesn't know whether it's happening now, really, or whether it might happen in the future. Anticipation is creating the same level of pain and fear as if it were happening right now. Anticipation is awful. And tell me, moms, because you are better at it even than us as men, how good when you're worried about your kids, something happening to your kids or something like that, how powerful is that oh. imagining? Oh, Anticipate, you know, you can't sleep. You see them in the creek. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's just going to happen. You know, we, we, we had a moment, we had, we had a wonderful, wonderful family with us and, a, and a, they had a, a son that was... A um, little, little simple, but just a great guy, and everybody loved him and everything. But there came a moment we're sitting, we're sitting there eating, and the question is, where's Adam? Is he, did he get back on the ship? We don't know. And I watched his mom's eyes go, where's Adam? And she comes over and she says, Kevin, I don't know if Adam's on the ship. And I went, <laughs> we're already at sea. You're not going to tell me we left him. Oh my gosh. And, and Cindy jumped up and she's running down. She's trying to find him and everything. We're just, we're all anticipating. Our brain is going, oh. What could happen here? What might be happening? What could we image? What could we imagine might be happening? And it was as bad as if it was happening right at that moment. Just carried off by the mind. Yeah. Then he comes, he comes up to, oh, I got to slept in. Yeah, I wasn't able to. <laughs> Didn't pick up the phone fast enough, sorry. <laughs> okay, well, how, how much pain is there in anticipation? Okay, so if you're in, if you're in the spirit world, and you've been living the Korahor doctrine, and you're doing great and everything, and then the missionaries come and bang on your cloud door, whatever they have in the spirit world, 
and they start teaching you and you start really and the spirit enters in and says what you did was wrong and then you're going wait a minute tell me that there isn't a awful fearful looking in the future of the fiery indignation of the wrath of God that's not even hit because you're anticipating flames and pain and having to stand remember Alma's description of having to stand before God in Alma 36 and wanting to not be there and, and, and wanting the rocks to fall on him if I have to stand in front of God that is the awful fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God I think they will because for a lot of them that leave, we've had so many people that are have been in the church they, they were raised in the church and they did all this stuff and they left the church and I don't think they were ever really in it some have but there have been an awful lot that were here by tradition they went to seminary every morning and slept they did all the stuff but they never got a testimony it's, it's amazing how many of them when I talked to when was the last time that God answered a prayer well I've really never had an answer to prayer even when I went on my mission I would tell people to pray but I never got my own answer and, and often 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 that happens and I think at some point there is this, when the understanding hits of what you've done, what we've done and how bad it was and who we've hurt and all that, I think there is this fiery anticipation of what might happen. Yeah, and when they, and uh, I think there can be a lot of them. They leave the church. They, they. Uh, I now believe that Mormons are stupid. I don't want my kids baptized. We're all leaving together. In fact, my wife, rather than put up with my haranguing, she left the church too. So now we're out, and and we're we're drinking nasty coffee until we finally get used to the. We develop a taste for it. <laughs> And then somewhere down the road when it hits and they go, oh my gosh, and I berated my kids and, and it was true. That's fiery wrath, yeah. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boyd K. Packer quoted Orson Whitney who was talking about Joseph Smith. <laughs> And Joseph Smith, according to Orson Whitney, um, said that because of the sealing ordinances, that if we have children that have gone astray, they, they will be brought back to us in the hereafter, though they might have to pass through the fiery pains yeah. and, and do a lot of repenting. Sure they will eventually return to us. Yeah, and I do think, but I think the more painful part is those that have steered them that way. Yeah. That, that's what we're talking about. Now, in the case of Alma, all of that fear that I'm going to have to stand before God and I'm going to want to self-destruct and everything, and then he, then he says, then my mind caught hold on the teachings of one Jesus, and I cried out, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, and then he says, then what? Then I could remember my pains 
No more. In other words, it never happened. It did not happen to the extent that they thought it was going to. As hard as repentance and disciplinary processes sometimes are in the church, they're not as bad as they're anticipated to be. They're just not. But when we're imagining, it's always worse. <coughs> and I believe that he's describing very well those in spirit prison, anticipating what's going to happen when I realize there is a God and I'm going to have to stand before him, and that anticipation makes things much worse. That's hell. That is hell. That is literal hell. And for them, the thing that would make that hell worse, make me actually stand in front of God with a full knowledge of my sins. Because yeah. I'm not picturing at that moment a very loving, nourishing God, am I? No. <laughs> I'm picturing a very vengeful, angry God who's going to strike me down and make me hurt. Because I don't understand God at that moment. All I understand is what I'm anticipating it might look like. And that scares the bejeebers out of me. That's frightening stuff. Okay. Oh, this is, yeah. Isn't it also a part of hell to realize what you might have received? I still think there's going to, yeah. I think there's going to be some regrets when we start looking at what we, what we missed out on. No question. So it isn't with, with the, uh, if we repent, it's just like, well, I never missed out on anything because we did. There is a cost. Great. It's a great point. Yeah. When people have what they call anxiety attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. A group of people, or they're in a situation they're uncomfortable. Or high places, or you know, called as Relief Society president or something. Yeah. Yeah, some of those. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering how much this plays in. We call it anticipatory anxiety. Uh, and so when, when I'm working with somebody, um, I have to hit them from two sides. I run them through the, the, the uh, we've got to go through the anticipatory anxiety, what were you thinking? I hand them over to uh, Wendy Walcott who works with people and teaching them their body to breathe and relax. But it's the anticipating, it's the thinking of what may occur that makes things worse and, and fires up the, the panic. Yeah. Getting back to the comment on regrets. Yeah. Is that not what part of what the atonement covers is the pain that comes with those regrets? Yeah. You got it. In other words, he's, he's, he's the one that's going to bear that in a way. And when you begin to understand the atonement, that's when... It, so, sometimes people have struggled with the idea of grace, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, struggle with the idea that, of grace that it's too easy, that repentance is too easy. It's easy grace. It should be harder. The Savior says, I took it. I, I did it. Okay? All right. Now, th this is a great place to spot. So let me show you where we're going to start next week. Because we haven't got to the punchline yet. I've told you the story without without the punchline. But the, the great thing about this is I'm going to have you um, okay, here's your homework. What we're looking for at the end of 40 and, and 41 and I want you to study the stuffings out of 
Alma 41 this next week because this is so incredibly powerful and I don't think it's ta taught in the church hardly at all. And it should because it is, it, and it bridges the works and faith thing perfectly. It's called the Law of Restoration of which resurrection is one subcategory of the Law of Restoration. It's only half. This bring about the restoration of those things which have been spoken of by the mouth of the prophets. And then he's going to go through and he's going to start to describe the resurrection part of restoration. Alma 41, the next chapter, will talk about the spiritual part of the plan of restoration. Uh, and so our... That's going to be our first slide next week talking about the eternal law of restoration but before we do it I want you to take the week and look at Alma 41 because we're going to have these intriguing words that says we are our own judges we do our own judging how does that occur and why and why how does the plan of restoration tie into that does that sound like a challenge I promise you, study it hard and you'll, and you'll love Alma 41. I love Alma 41 because it is so powerful. Very my testimony that uh, the, these are such inspired stuff and if we'll see it, we'll see it how, how much it applies to our lives right at the moment. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Shana, can we get you to give us a closing prayer? Stay away from airports for a day or two. Let, <laughs> let the protests settle down before you get out there. On your um, slide.